This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's episode is about the first successful ascent of Denali in Alaska. Denali is the name that the Kiyukin of the Baskins have used for centuries to refer to the mountain peak, based on a Kiyukin word for high or tall. When Alaska was a Russian territory, they called the mountain Bolshaya Gora, meaning Big Mountain. In 1897, a Seattle businessman named William A. Dickey, upon returning from an expedition in the interior of Alaska, dubbed the mountain McKinley after the Republican presidential nominee. Later stories reported that Dickey may have named the mountain McKinley to get back at two prospectors who bored him with their support for free silver. So he named the mountain after a champion of the gold standard. We'll come back to the story of the name in a bit, but I'll continue to call it Denali throughout. Denali is the tallest mountain in North America with a peak of 20,320 feet above sea level. Although not as tall as mountains in Tibet, India, Nepal, and Pakistan, Denali rises higher above the surrounding terrain than peaks like Mount Everest, which, coupled with its extreme weather conditions, make it a very challenging climb. The first recorded attempt at scaling Denali was made by an expedition led by District Judge and future Congressional Delegate James Wickersham in 1903. The northern route that his group followed led them to an impassable mountain face, which is still known as Wickersham Wall. On June 20, 1903, Wickersham wrote in his diary, we have reluctantly concluded that there is no possible chance of further ascent from this side of Denali at this season, or any other season for that matter. He wasn't far off. It wasn't until 1963 that another expedition successfully followed that route. In 1906, American explorer Dr. Frederick Albert Cook claimed to have successfully summited Denali. His claim was immediately doubted by other members of his team, who had been left on lower peaks, but he wasn't publicly challenged at the time. However, Cook also claimed to have been the first to reach the North Pole in April 1908, a year before Robert Peary's claim. A commission at the University of Copenhagen reviewed Cook's records and ruled his claim unproven. Although Peary's claim was widely accepted at the time, later scientific evidence shows that his expedition probably also did not reach the pole. The discrediting of Cook's North Pole claim 
led to a re-examination of his Denali claim. There is no evidence that Cook successfully climbed Denali's Peak, and available evidence suggests that he turned back at the gateway, failing to reach the top. In April 1910, a group of four gold miners, Thomas Lloyd, Peter Anderson, Charlie McGonagall, and Bill Taylor, summited the 19,470-foot North Peak of Denali. The expedition, which became known as the Sourdough Expedition, left a 14-foot spruce pole at the peak. The foursome weren't born in Alaska, but they claimed Alaskan status after years in the northern wilds, carrying pouches of sourdough starter around their waists, thus the sourdough name. In 1912, an expedition led by Herschel Clifford Parker and Belmore Brown nearly reached the south summit, but they were forced to turn back very near the top due to weather conditions. The day after they descended, an earthquake destroyed the glacier that they had ascended. Finally, on June 7, 1913, the summit was achieved. The team that made the three-month journey and successful ascent were co-organizers 49-year-old Archdeacon of the Yukon and the Arctic, Hudson Stuck, and 34-year-old Harry Karstens, along with a pair of 21-year-olds, Robert Tatum, and Alaska native William Harper, who was Stuck's protege. Two Gwich'in teenagers, Johnny Fredson and Esaias George, joined the expedition to help with the sled dogs but they didn't ascend to the peak. Fredson, who was later the first Alaska native to graduate from college, with Stuck's urging, and who became a tribal leader, managed the base camp on his own for 31 days and hunted to feed the dogs who couldn't make it to the summit. The ascent was slow going, as the team had to methodically move their gear from one camp to the next, while they cut steps and built snow bridges. The earthquake from the year before made the central northeastern ridge a treacherous climb. Finally, they caught a break in the weather, and battling altitude sickness and extreme cold, they reached the top. Walter Harper was the first to set foot on the summit. While at the top, they looked across to the North Peak and spotted the flagpole left by the sourdough expedition the only proof of that expedition that's ever been seen. Stuck later recalled, I remember no day in my life so full of toil, distress, and exhaustion, and yet so full of happiness and keen gratification. After they descended the mountain, Stuck sent a messenger to Fairbanks to announce their success, which was reported in the New York Times on June 21, 1913. In 1918, Stuck published a book about their ascent, and in 1919, he was awarded the Back Award of the Royal Geographical Society. In February 1917, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Mount McKinley National Park Act, and despite Hudson Stuck's efforts to keep the name of the mountain Denali, the official name became Mount McKinley. 
1975, the Alaska State Legislature asked the United States Board on Geographic Names to change the federal name to Denali, which the Alaska Board of Geographic Names had already done earlier that year. The request was blocked by Ohio Congressman Ralph Regula, whose district in Ohio included Canton, William McKinley's longtime hometown and resting place. Incidentally, Ralph Regula was my congressman from the time I was born until I left Ohio for college. On August 28, 2015, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell, issued the order to change the name to Denali, effective immediately. Alaskans, including Senator Lisa Murkowski, praised the move, but Ohio politicians panned it as a political stunt, with Representative Bob Gibbs calling it constitutional overreach, and by then-retired Congressman Regula saying that Obama thought he was a dictator. According to the Alaska Dispatch News, the Secretary of the Interior has the authority to change a name when the Board of Geographic Names does not act on a naming request within a reasonable period of time. By that point, they had been sitting on the request for 40 years. Joining me to help us understand more about the first successful ascent of Denali and about its co-leader, Archdeacon Hudson Stuck, is writer Patrick Dean, author of A Window to Heaven, The Daring First Ascent of Denali, America's Wildest Peak. First, I'd like to read for you an excerpt from the preface of Hudson Stuck's book, The Ascent of Denali, a narrative of the first complete ascent of the highest peak in North America. This book is in the public domain. Forefront in this book, because forefront in the author's heart and desire, must stand a plea for the restoration to the greatest mountain in North America of its immemorial native name. If there be any prestige or authority in such matter from the accomplishments of a first complete ascent, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, the author values it chiefly as it may give weight to this plea. Should the reader ever be privileged, as the author was a few years ago, to stand on the frozen surface of Lake Minchumina and see these mountains revealed as the clouds of a passing snowstorm swept away, he would be overwhelmed by the majesty of the scene and at the same time deeply moved with the appropriateness of the simple native name. For simplicity is always a quality of true majesty. It was on that occasion, standing spellbound at the sublimity of the scene, that the author resolved that if it were in his power, he would restore these ancient mountains to the ancient people among whom they rear their heads. There is, to the author's mind, a certain ruthless arrogance that grows more offensive to him as the years pass by. In the temper that comes to a new land and contemptuously ignores the native names of conspicuous natural objects, almost always appropriate and significant, and overlays them with names that are commonly neither the one nor the other. The learned societies of the world, the geographical societies, 
the ethnological societies, have set their faces against this practice these many years past, and to them the writer confidently appeals. So hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, this is a mostly fun topic. Not every topic I do is fun, so (laughs) that's always a, a nice change. So I would love to hear a little bit just how you got interested in Hudson Stuck and in writing this book. To take it way back, in my 20s, I had a period of time where I was a little bit obsessed with Alaska and Africa for some reason. And I was living in Mississippi, growing up in Mississippi. I don't know why I chose those places, but I was reading a lot of books about both. And at some point, I picked up a book called 10,000 Miles of a Dog Sled by this guy named Hudson Stuck. And I still have that exact copy. I reused it to write this book, actually. And uh, so that was the beginning of my exposure to him. And then in 1999, my wife and I moved to Swanee, Tennessee, on the Cumberland Plateau, the home of the University of the South, and basically sort of realized that Hudson Stuck, the author of that book, had been a real presence here. He'd gotten his uh, theological training here. He was a a beloved son of the university. There's a, a plaque in his honor in All Saints chapel and a statue of him behind the altar. And so I sort of made that connection that that was the same guy whose, whose book I had. And then while teaching at a local school here, St. Andrew's Swanee School, I um, earned a master's degree, uh, an MA in theology from the University of South School of Theology, and decided to write my thesis on Stuck. The Muscular Christianity of Hudson Stuck was my thesis. So, And that sort of led to me learning more about him. And um, at some point, I was uh, I was in a writer's group, and uh, it just sort of developed into an idea for a book, and I just took it from there. Yeah. So I would like to talk some then about muscular Christianity, uh, which I think is, you know, it, it's something that, that is certainly still with us, but but people who, who don't study religious studies or theology might not have a lot of familiarity with the term and what it means and how it would apply to someone like Hudson Stuck. So could you talk some about that? Sure. So the term is usually used to talk about this movement in 19th century Christianity, the, the, the church, the, um, the Church of England specifically, but also churches here in the United States and elsewhere in the, in the world. It, the idea is that sort of um, along with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the British Empire and all those social forces that were going on, there was a, there was a, um, a current uh, that said that you know, Christianity had become too soft, too meek, too humble, and that you needed a, um, you needed pastors and church members with grit and fortitude and strength and all that sort of thing. And so it, it led to a lot of the missionary impulses that we've seen in that, that his, in that section of time. And it took it, it went off into some really unpleasant directions, you know, in terms of colonialism and paternalism and imperialism. But that was the basic impulse behind it that, uh, that, you know, your, your ideal clergyman was, could ride a horse and live in the woods and do whatever he or she had to, to he mainly had to do to, uh, to connect with people and, 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 and spread the gospel. And so that's what the muscular Christianity movement was, was basically all about. And it was sort of tied slightly, not totally, not closely with the social gospel of making people's lives better as part of the mission of, of the church. And do you think that Hudson Stuck, I mean, obviously he embodies some of this 
Do you think that he was sort of influenced by this? Do you think like that's just who he would have been anyway in the way he would have practiced <laughs> Christianity and he was just sort of lucky to be at a time that that was celebrated? You know, what? what's your sense of what's sort of going on there? I think, um, well, he's a very interesting character. He's, he's the opposite of one dimensional. And so it's hard to tease out exactly how that works. But he was always fascinated with stories of exploration and daring do. He was a classic Victorian who loved there were these this series of stories written by a guy named Henty about these plucky young British lads who went off and you know found fame and fortune fighting in India or wherever. And stuff loved those. So he probably would have been just like that anyway. But uh, I think it matched up well with his personality and his desire to work through the church on behalf of on behalf of the people that he was serving. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, his time in Texas um, before we move to Alaska. So in Texas, he's really this this sort of social justice part that that you mentioned. That's really what is sort of driving him. He you know he's he's going out and and you know traveling the country and hiking and stuff. But that that is much less tied to his sort of uh, religious tradition at that point. And what he is instead doing is founding schools and you know and really sort of working on this social justice piece was that a good fit in texas at that time you know how how was he sort of received well yes and no you know there were there was he was an interesting uh person to have at that point in in dallas because in very in many ways like i said he was a classic victorian englishman born in england before he emigrated to the united states and he had his he had his stuffy ways he insisted on uh, the women covering their heads in church. And, uh, when he was, he was, uh, he was dean of the cathedral of Dallas, St. Matthew's Cathedral. A very prominent position in a very prominent church in a, in a town that was becoming the Dallas that we know of it today. Wealthy, um, plutocratic, uh, royal wealth was beginning to happen. And so in some ways he was a good fit. And in others, he was, he was a little, uh, a little more friction there because he, he, uh, had no qualms about castigating his his congregation about performing lives of service and not being uh, prisoners of wealth or status. So uh, it was a mixed it was a mixed bag for sure. But he did, as you said, have an amazing record in terms of of uh, social justice and and welfare accomplishments. He he worked with the wives of many of these social socially prominent businessmen and and famous Dallas people to get the first child labor laws passed in the state of Texas. It was a women's clubs that were his main allies in this, in this battle. So he had this sort of mixed record of being very easily uh, able to deal with different social classes to get done what he wanted to do, while at the same time being his, very much his own man and, and being willing to, to tell them what he thought they needed to hear. Yeah. And so then he goes off to Alaska. And, you know, so as you mentioned, this is someone who grew up in England uh, and then had spent his entire time in the U.S., basically in the South, in Tennessee and in Texas. And he goes off to Alaska, which is a very different kind of place. Uh, what sort of drew him to Alaska and to wanting to be there? And, you know, it, it seems like it ended up being an, an extremely good fit for him. You know, so what what are the things that sort of made that such a good fit for him? We have this great story that he relates about um, his an uncle of his who was a merchant marine sailor who was lost at sea and left his family, left Stuck's family, um, his collection of leather-bound books on polar exploration. And we have this great scene of young Hudson Stuck as a child 
leafing through these beautifully bound volumes and being, you know, just enraptured by the pictures of polar bears and penguins and all that kind of thing. And so from an early age, he loved exploration. He had hundreds of books on, on exploration, particularly polar exploration. And so um, that, that part of going to Alaska definitely appealed to him. Um, he also had the sort of muscular Christianity aspect of thinking his job in Texas was too soft. He, he said that he had not been challenged enough. He hadn't, hadn't experienced enough hardships on behalf of his mission as, as a priest and a missionary. So, and he also quite frankly admitted that the, the fact that there was an unclimbed mountain like Denali was a factor in his going to Alaska. So personal ambition and, and, uh, um, career ambition factored in, I think, almost equally. So uh, I want to get to Denali. We're working our way there. But <laughs> first, let's just sort of set the stage for Alaska. Alaska is still a really hard place to get around. <laughs> uh, as, as anybody who's like a state legislator in Alaska and has to go back and forth to their home territory knows, like th this is just a tough place to get around. It's an especially tough place to get around here at the very end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. So what does Hudson Stuck need to do just to visit the people in Alaska that he is there on mission to? <laughs> right. Well, I mentioned his book, 10,000 Miles of the Dog Sled, and it was the first of four books that he wrote. And uh, it was all about uh, beginning the very first winter he was there. Um, he went by dog sled to get a circuit of the mission churches in the interior of Alaska. Um, you know, it could be 50 below zero whiteouts. Didn't matter. He's still... You know, he still did that trek for almost every year he was alive in Alaska on uh, doing his doing his work. And then not long after that, he figured out that he wanted to go and see uh, the, the establishments, the settlements along the rivers. Um, so he had a boat, the Pelican, bought for him. And in the summertime, he would travel up and down the Yukon and its tributaries um, because that's where all the people were in, in the warmer weather, um, which was his second book he wrote. So um, he was almost always traveling either by dog sled or by, or by launch, gasoline launch, during his time as, as Archdeacon of Alaska and the Yukon with 250,000 square miles of territory to cover. And so this is a, a, a tricky thing, right? Being a Christian, in this case Episcopalian, missionary to Native people. How was he received by those people that he was there on mission to? Yeah, it is. And that's that's probably the most complicated um, sort of dynamic to think about as you're writing about this period in history, because you want to do justice to Alaska Native history and Alaska Native culture. And you also want to explore how it was that this man, Hudson Stuck, was so beloved by that culture and still is today. I have stories um, that I could tell you about um, how he is still talked about in those circles. Um, and there's a there's an irreconcilable you know thing going on here, which is that Stuck was was known then and still is known for his passionate desire that Alaska natives be able to keep their culture, their language, their traditions, their their dance, their songs, their you know all of that, except their religious beliefs. <laughs> you know he had this, and he seemed to somehow have this, and he, he never went into this. He never talked about this or wrote about this. But he seemed to have the the idea that you could keep, you could you could convert them to Christianity, but still hang on to everything else. And so that's a that's a, a, a fracture point or something, if you want to call it that, um, that never got fully resolved. But somehow, as Alaska Natives made their way into 
sort of modernity, he was there to sort of champion them to the extent that he could. And uh, so that's just how it just how it played out. And so one of the ways he wanted to champion them was by climbing Denali, <laughs> which is a, a sort of interesting, you know, I'm sure anybody who who does a major expedition like this has lots of different things that are driving them. Um, and certainly in his case, that's true as well. But one of them is to sort of draw attention to the Alaskan natives. And so can you talk about that, that impulse in what he's doing, how he saw this ascent of Denali as furthering those goals? Yeah, one of the things I would really like to say about, about this expedition is, you know, today we have all of these, it's commonplace now for people to ride a bicycle across the United States to bring awareness of climate change or trek to the South Pole to bring awareness of some major issue. But in the early 1900s, when Stuck and his guys were, were uh, heading toward Denali, it was a very different game. It was very much still a nationalistic game. Um, it was very much a chauvinistic game. And it was all about, you know, white men planting their nation's flags on places. And so you can almost see this, this 1913 Denali expedition as the first cause expedition, because Stuck did make it very clear that, that he was doing everything he could, making speeches in the lower 48, writing interminable articles um, about what was going on in Alaska to bring his, um, the situation up there to a wider audience and to get support for, for what they were doing, financial and, and otherwise. And so he, uh, he conceived of this expedition to Denali as part of that effort. And it was no accident that he recruited Walter Harper, his protege, his half-native protege, to be a crucial member of the team. So he decides he's going to climb Denali, uh, which had never been done at that, or had never been successfully done at that point. People had certainly tried. This seems like a massive undertaking. So, I, you know, I, I've done some backpacking, not recently, but in my youth did, did some backpacking and climbing. And nowadays we have sort of all sorts of advantages to us. So you can get a lot closer to the base of the mountain before you start and all sorts of like lightweight gear and stoves that are designed for this and like everything. What are the, the kinds of challenges that they are facing in doing something like this, climbing this mountain? to the top for the very first time. You know, what What does this look like for them? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to start with, they had to, to dog sled for three weeks from uh, from the town they left just to get to the base of Denali. You know, they had to uh, prepare their own food along the way. They had to, they had to hunt uh, and shoot sheep and that sort of thing to, uh, to live on while they were traveling. Um, they prepared a bunch of what they called pemmican, it's a combination of fat and meat uh, that you can preserve and take up to the mountain with you. They had and firewood for building fires to keep warm. I mean, <laughs> they had no no ultralight stoves for those guys. So you're right. And and the clothing. I mean, you know, they had six layers of of wool socks on and all that sort of thing, and and big fur links fur mittens and uh, handmade crampons on on the bottoms of their moccasins. You know, it was a very different deal technologically than than now. So, but they didn't know any different. So that was the, you know, they didn't miss it because <laughs> they'd, they'd never heard of Gore-Tex. So it was, you know, they didn't feel the lack very much. But uh, I think they all thought that their experience in the backcountry of Alaska dealing with the conditions um, gave them, you know, what they needed to to make it to the top. So Kirsten's is this uh, sort of co-leader of the expedition, um, but he and uh, he and Stuck along the way start to uh, 
when you're stuck in that smaller group with someone for weeks and months on end, it's understandable. Tensions are going to flare sometimes. Um, but it seems like this was sort of really um, maybe not outwardly butting heads very often, but uh, sort of inward resentments and things that are building. What is going on with this relationship? Yeah, that uh, the Karstens stuck uh, dynamic was one of the more interesting things to to figure out how to write about for this book because, as you said, there were there were personality conflicts. But to bring it forward a little bit, you know, twenty thirteen was the hundredth anniversary of this climb, and in that in the course of celebrating that, there was a lot of sort of revisionism in terms of you know. It was almost like the Karstens partisans had the floor. It was like Stug didn't do anything, and Karsten did everything, and dragged Stug bodily up the mountain, and all this kind of stuff, you know. And I was determined, while being fair to Karstens to the extent I could, I was going to just sort of examine that and try to try to see how I could portray that. And so um, I was very I was very proud to be able to communicate with Karsten's grandson and great grandson on the phone via email and and go through a lot of this with them. And I think we came to a place of mutual respect, the history and about Stuck and about Carson's. And um, they read my Carson's chapter and they, they, they gave it their blessing and that sort of thing. But yeah, for whatever reason, Carson's and Stuck on the mountain did not get along at all. It was mainly in the direction of Carson's to Stuck because Stuck was unaware of it as far as, you know, he, he thought when Carson's blew up about things as he did, Stuck just thought it was a matter of, you know, the weather, the exposure, the tedium of being on the mountain, that sort of thing. Whereas for Carstens, it was it was a deep-seated distaste for Stuck and the way he did things. And uh, it played out after the expedition with with Carstens accusing Stuck of undermining Carstens and taking all the glory himself and not giving him his due. And they never reconciled. So um, it was a tricky and interesting thing to write about, for sure. Uh, so you just mentioned the tedium of being on the mountain. So let's talk about that piece. Uh, doing something like uh, Denali, even now, but certainly back then, isn't just like you hike up a mountain and back down. <laughs> this is a really, really long process, especially for them. So what what is this sort of overall expedition look like? Like, what are they actually doing in any given day uh, that ends up taking months to get to the top of the mountain? Right. Well, you know, today there's a there's a there's a type of alpinism that's fast and light, where you take it as as little equipment as possible and try to get up as fast as possible and down as fast as possible. But then, in those days, they really didn't have that that uh, luxury. Again, going back to the technology, and so it was very much what you call um, siege style climbing, where you have to take supplies up and then come back down and bring you know haul more supplies up and you know, so they spent most of the time doing that at, when they weren't absolutely stuck in the tent because of the horrendous weather. And Denali has really, really horrendous weather. Most of the time when, when people are not successful in climbing, it's because of the the whiteouts, the wind, the vicious winds, uh, and the cold are the, are the biggest factors for that. And uh, this party certainly had to deal with all of that. And they spent days and days and days at a time when they never left the tent. They couldn't leave the tent. So... But they they stuck it out. It also gives you a little bit of a um, maybe window into why Karstens is getting more and more resentful <laughs> the longer you have to right. spend with someone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We, there are lots of examples of very, very good friends who go on expeditions and can't stand each other by the time they get out. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To- totally understandable. There. <laughs> One of the things they bring with them in this not traveling light is books, right? <laughs> Which seems right. 
kind of crazy in the current day, but you know, obviously if they're stuck for days and days at a time that they can't even leave the tent, they need something to do. Uh, so can you talk some about that, about sort of bringing books, the kinds of lessons that they're doing while they're up there and, and what that piece of it looks like? One of the things that that's, that really seems to be what, what stuck in Karsten's crawl was the fact that, so as I mentioned, uh, Walter Harper, who was 21, was, was Stuck's protege, and they had been on the trail for years together. And they had this, the system work, worked out where, you know, they would, they would get somewhere, they would make camp, and Harper would do most of the work in terms of setting up camp and fires and food and all that kind of stuff. And Stuck would tutor Harper. So they'd spend the night, you know, um, reading Shakespeare or reading one of those hinty books I was talking about or, memorizing the U.S. president or something, kings and queens of England. I mean, it was, or math or whatever. And so they had this routine down. And uh, also, and Stuck was also riding 10,000 miles of the dog sled while they were on Denali. So to Karsten's, you know, when they get to camp and, and Stuck's lying around as Karsten sees it, you know, writing books or, you know, that sort of thing, it just, uh, it rubbed him the wrong way. And he just, he was not prepared for that at all. Um, I guess, you know, I, Weight isn't really that big a consideration when you're on when you're dog sled certainly, and they did a lot of hauling with 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 sleds and everything. So um, there was a sense in which you know everything weighs so much anyway. Books aren't even that much of a, an added imposition. Books and notebooks, and so that's sort of the the really fascinating thing you mentioned talking to to some of the descendants, but also we have from all four of the members of this expedition journals. Uh, that they kept while they were on the mountain. Uh, and so you are able to do this thing in your book, piecing together, like on this day, you can look at all four of their entries, you know, and then <laughs> the next day and what happens. Can you Bye. talk a little bit about that, that process and having that sort of incredible insight into what was happening each day? Yeah, we're, we're very lucky to live in a time we do where all of these uh, resources are available online. I could, I could, you know, see the actual photographs of the actual pages that that had been written by by Stuck and the others and you're right it's fascinating to compare the same account of of the same day and you know one person just barely mentions it and the other one goes off for two or three paragraphs about you know how much it irritates them that something has happened but it was an invaluable resource and it really brought that expedition to life and I was really really lucky to be able to interweave those narratives while they're on the mountain yeah uh, so as people read your book, which they should, they'll be able to see this sort of progression. And and really, uh, you get this sense. I, I don't mean that the book is tedious, but you get this sense of the tedium of like, oh, my gosh, they're stuck again. They're just going to stay there for another day. And like, I, I can't imagine what, what this feels like for them. Right. I, I, I think I would have might I might have been like um, Tatum, the fourth member of the expedition who who gave gave vent to his feelings about wanting to be home a lot more than the other three did while he was on the mountain. I'm thinking about Knoxville and I'm thinking about my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that might have been me following that case for sure. Yeah. So at the end, they, uh, they're they able to ascend. They get to the top of, of Denali. Uh, and of course, we in this conversation are calling it Denali, which is what it is called now. But at the time, uh, Americans were uh, calling it Mount McKinley. And so that's part of the story as well. And they, it, it seems like, you know, I, I suspect this is true of a lot of sort of mountain climbs is that the, it, it's almost 
it's like you get to the top and then you're like, okay, well, <laughs> we're here, you know, and, and, you know, you're there for a little while, but then you got to leave again because <laughs> you can't sleep at the top of the mountain. <laughs> so right. I guess what, what sort of, what do they do when they get to the top? And, uh, you know, and then it seems like the, the downhill is, is much easier and they're sort of just like, this is all behind them at this point. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, you know, this stuck especially was still in that sort of Victorian mode where you were not, you were exploring for a purpose, not just for, you know, glory. And so they had the scientific instruments, they had the barometer and the thermometer. So he insisted that they do it through all these, you know, scientific things on the top of the mountain and then they and then they um they erected a cross and and sang a hymn the te deum as as uh, a good episcopalian and uh and uh they flew tatum had made a flag hand sewn a flag out of just spare parts laying around in the tent during some of those tedious uh days and so they flew the flag and took some really bad double exposed photographs and then they came down like you said and it would you know they were Took them three days. I mean, they, you know, they were weeks and weeks on the mountain and then three days to get back down. And then I came back down in, in June, it was turned spring. So there's like wildflowers and everything going on. So they go from the cold, frozen uh, mountain down to the spring flowers. And that's a, that was an amazing feeling, obviously, for them. Yeah. So uh, do you think that, that Stuck accomplished, obviously, he accomplished the goal of getting to the top of the mountain, but uh, do you think that he was able to accomplish the the kinds of goals he was trying to with this sort of uh, this cause, this bringing awareness to Native Alaskans? Uh, he's uh, sort of forthright about saying he wants the mountain to be called Denali, which obviously doesn't happen immediately. But you know, do you do you think that that he considered this a success? That's a good question. I think that I think he would have been pleased that he was able to write a book and, and sell fairly well about Tenali that he was able to travel around the country speaking about it. I think he was, he'd be delighted that June the 7th is Walter Harper Day in Alaska today. You know, I think for me, the reasons he would feel good, but I think he would also see the legacy of, of native and white interrelations in Alaska from a, from a not quite so pleasant or satisfied point of view. I think he would still be very concerned with, with that dynamic as well as issues like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I think he would be very much in favor of, of keeping that keeping that pristine. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be a mixed record. I think he would be proud in some ways of what he would have done, but he would still see a lot that needed to be done. So there's all sorts of other things that happen on the mountain that people need to just go read your book to, to learn more about. So tell people how they can get your book. Oh, anywhere books are sold, a window to heaven. I'd, I'd love for you to check it out and um, please enjoy it and let me know what you think. And you're writing another book now. I am. It's another biography. It's um, it's an 18th century naturalist named Mark Catesby, who um, the elevator pitches. He did Audubon a century before Audubon did. He came to um, North America in 1722 and traveled all over South Carolina, a little bit of Florida and the Bahamas, went back to England and published the very first illustrated guide to the plants and animals of of this country. And so it was a quite a landmark, quite an achievement. That's who I'm writing about this time. Due out in 2023. Excellent. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to make sure we talk about? Well, two things. First of all, um, I think it's really neat that it wasn't planned this way, but as it happened, Walter Harper was the first to set foot on Denali on June the 7th, 1913. And I, I think Stuck was obviously delighted about that. And 
Stuck did uh, was very forceful in saying that Denali should be the name of the mountain and not McKinley. I was giving a reading a year ago, uh, and someone asked me, "You're talking about Denali being the highest mountain in, in the North America, but I thought Mount McKinley was the highest mountain in North America." <laughs> we still haven't quite gotten to everybody with that, that renaming yet. And Stuck's tale is also the, the story of an enduring, enduring legacy. I got to meet a former rector, a retired rector of St. Matthew's Fairbanks, which was Stuck's church. Got to know Scott really well, and he's old enough to have known people who knew stuff. So he's an amazing resource for me and been a, become a close friend. And uh, he was telling me a story that happened just recently. First of all, you have to know that there's this apocryphal maybe story about Hudson Stuck, the kind you would expect to, to be told about him, where his boat was lodged on a riverbank and couldn't get out. And a steamboat pilot comes by and says, who are you? And Archdeacon says, I'm stuck. <laughs> and of course, you get this whole Abbott and Costello thing where he goes, I can see you're stuck, but what's your name? You know, that kind of thing. So um, that story has been around forever. And so Scott Fisher, my friend, was spending time with some elder, some native elders. And they were just sort of hanging out like they do and talking about everything as they do. And one of those elders from nowhere brought up the story about Hudson Stuck being stuck on the riverbank. I mean, I'm talking about 2021 over 100 years after he died. So um, he was called, his his witchin name uh, translated to big preacher, even though he wasn't a very big man physically. And so uh, it's a fascinating story about how someone like him could have such a huge impact for quite a long time just because of who he was and what he did. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the the story that when the royal is it the royal geological group I forget the name of yeah. the group but yeah. that he that he'd been trying to join for years and they give him an award after he uh, ascends the mountain and he's like great but you called it Mount McKinley <laughs> you <should laughs> called right. it Denali that's right that was that was that was classic stuff to lecture people about how they should do things he was very good at doing that so yeah I'm very proud to be a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society for sure yeah it meant a lot to him. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, this is a great story, and uh, everyone should check out your book. It's really fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.